there's a lot of things I love about that video. And one of them is the cause itself. You know, it's, it's pretty hard to make a case that helping refugees isn't a great way to invest your time and your energy and your, and your money. So that's one of the things I love. And we have a number of people who are involved in refugee ministries here at our church. And right after the service, if you want to hop out there in the lobby, there's some information about, about getting involved. Um, I believe Heidi Lumen is going to be out there too. And she's involved. She'd love to talk with you. If there's things you'd like to do in this area, if you feel inspired to do something, it's a great cause. So that's one of the reasons I love the video. The other thing I love about this video is the whole call to get personally engaged. Face-to-face person to person, to find areas where you're personally engaged in, a, in, a, in an issue, in a, in, a, in a situation like this. Getting personally engaged, it's a game changer. To know somebody in one of those boats that we saw there, to know one of these people personally, it is a game changer in so many ways. I, I just fin- finished a book, and in the book I was introduced to, to a guy um, through the book that I had never, never heard of him before. Um, here's a picture of, of this guy giving his TED Talk. His name is Freeman, and he's a chancellor for the University of Maryland in Baltimore. He's been featured in 60 Minutes and in Time Magazine. He was listed as one of the most influential people for his work when it comes to helping um, inspire minority and low-income students. And this guy's life was forever changed when someone encouraged him to get involved. And he was just 12 years old at the time. And he was sitting in church of all places. He was sitting in church, a place that he didn't want to be as a 12-year-old. And there was a speaker that day. And the speaker started talking about how people can change the different, change the world. And this speaker said this. He said, if we can get children to participate in a peaceful demonstration right here in Birmingham... We can show America that even children know the difference between right and wrong. Well, Freeman didn't know who this guy was who was saying these things. And so he whispered to his mom and dad and said, who's this guy? And his parents said, that's Dr. Martin Luther King. And the, and the boy then after the service said, well, we got to do that thing he said to do. And the parents said, no way. It's too dangerous. You could end up in jail. And the kid was this kid who grew up. He, he was confused by all that. He said, why in the world would you bring me to church? And then when the guy says, here's what we should do, you say that we shouldn't do it. Oh, parents are like, good point. <laughs> but they also knew the cost. And so they prayed and they, and they had tears all night. And come morning time, they said, okay, you can go. And while the boy was in jail, a 12-year-old in jail for a peaceful march, Dr. Martin Luther King came into that jail and said these words to those kids. He said, what you children do this day will have an impact on children who have not yet been born. This kid got called into a a firsthand experience that forever changed his life and also was part of a movement that God was doing to change the world. Well, last week we began a series about called About Us. And if you're new to this church or if you're watching online to learn more about our approach to how we look at missional partnerships, you need to know that personal engagement, it is in our DNA. This is who we are. It's one of the reasons we're in a community center. There's other reasons too. It's one of them. This is who we are. 
And one of the reasons I can say that, I mean, this is in our DNA. I can say that. Here's, here's, here's a photo of a young man. Our, our, our church would not exist. Our, our church, Emmanuel Covenant Church, would not exist if there wasn't a man named Roger Twido who invited this kid to come with him to Juarez, Mexico and get personally engaged. It, it, God used that trip. It was a game changer in my life. It opened my eyes in countless ways and it changed the whole trajectory of my future. Well, this morning, we're going to talk about God's call to every person, to every person who identifies as a Jesus follower, the call for everyone to be personally engaged somehow when it comes to these issues that are all around us, personally engaged in ministry to those who are lost and are hurting. And this isn't anything new. This isn't something that we came up with. The prophets, they called God's people to be engaged in ministry, didn't they? Read a passage like Isaiah chapter 58. Wow. Jesus, he called his followers to this kind of ministry. In passages like Matthew 25, the early leaders of the Christian movement, they called people to faith, to this kind of ministry. In places like James chapter 1. And as they began to live this out, the world took notice. The world took notice. Here's a quote from a book that we highly recommend. It's called When Helping Hurts. How many of you have read the book? All right. Isn't it a good one? It's an it's a important book. If you're going to read one book on outreach, that's the one I'd recommend. The info um, from your, for the book is in your notes, in, the, in those green inserts. Here's the quote. Um, It shows how early on people were looking at these Christians and going, they're living differently. In the 4th century AD, the Roman Emperor Julian tried to launch pagan charities to compete with the highly successful Christian charities that were attracting so many converts. Writing to a pagan priest, Julian complained. He said those impious Galileans, meaning the Christians, they support not only their poor, but ours as well. And everyone can see. That our people lack aid from us. That's because people weren't doing social safety nets like we, we see today back then. People weren't caring for the poor and the widows the way we see it today. And over time, Christians, by their example, so influenced the world to the point where the world began meeting needs that the church were, were the only ones once meeting. And as time went on, as more and more people that weren't Christians were stepping up and, and making a difference, it became easier for people who identified as Christians to outsource their outreach. And a number of professing Christians, the number of professing Christians who were personally engaged when it came to things like caring for widows and orphans and refugees, that number, that percentage decreased. Well, today there's large numbers of people, especially in Western churches, that basically outsource all of their outreach through their giving to their local church. There's a place to write this down in your notes, um, in, your, in your green inserts. Church budgets, what they often do is they aspire to earmark what's known as a tithe of the tithes to, quote, missions. Well, if the Bible serves as your standard for belief and conduct, it is very, very, very hard to make a case that a follower of Jesus should give less than 10% of their income back to God. It is very hard to make that case. If you can, let me know, because I don't want to say things that aren't true. Fact check me on that. Read the Bible cover to cover. It's very, very hard to make that case. And standard practice for many churches is to model that then themselves, to take a tithe of the tithes and give that to causes all around the world. 
very typical approach. Because this is such common practice, I grew up assuming that this must be in the Bible somewhere. That you must be able to go to the scripture and, and there must be a percentage, a tenth, a tenth or something like that, that the churches should do that. If you can find that biblical mandate in the Bible, let me know. Because I can't find it. I know of, a, of two places that reference a tithe of the tithes. But if I were in a debate, I would not point people to those two verses. And I'll, I'll show you why. If you haven't read them before in context, I'll show you why in a few minutes. But before I do that, I want to say this as clear as I can. I'm going to step away from my notes on this. I think it's vitally important that as we as a church grow, we're given more and more and more money away. So for the record, it, it might sound like I'm getting down on, on this, this principle. That, that's not my, my point here. As we grow, we should be investing more and more and more of our, of our time and our talents and our treasure. We should be investing generously in ways that are spirit-led, in ways that are sacrificial. And, and just to let you guys know, if you're not familiar with our church, here's some stats that back this up. We're not giving lip service to this. Here's our budgetary increase since 2011. And the reason I, I picked 2011 is that's the first year we were an official covenant church. Up until that point, we were under the, the leadership of the covenant. This was our first full year as a covenant church where, where we're like, okay, training wheels are off. You guys go. And what was interesting, interesting to me, since 2011, our overall church budget, the whole thing has increased by 193%, which is a wow, by the way. This is a very, very generous congregation. Way to go. Way to go. Now, I want to give a reference point here. In that time, our, the, the, the percent um, that we are spending on meeting and storage spaces, that amount of money has gone up by 17%. That number last year was 4%. It's increased in this budget because we're going to be renting this whole place for teenagers on Wednesdays. That's not going to be cheap, but we think it's a great investment for not just our teens, but for other teens as well. So, But look at this. In, in what is it, six years... Our budget has gone up by 17% in meeting storage spaces. But look at this. Outreach, evangelism, missional relationships. It's gone up how much? 260. And that number is low. Let me tell you why. Because we don't track everything. We don't track, we don't track the, the amount of money that we spend on staff time that's devoted specifically to this area. We, we don't count the use of our office and copy machines and all this kind of stuff that we do for other organizations. And here was something. I, I ran the numbers last night. If we were to just take one thing that we're not tracking, if we were to, to just take um, giving to one specific children's home, not counting World Vision, the people sponsor child, children there, not counting Compassion International, if we were just to take the, the amount of money that, that our church has, is, is giving outside of our budget to Emmanuel Children's Home in the form of child sponsorship, that number would go up to 400%. If we just added that. And that doesn't count. Us donating the trailer, donating projectors, donating money towards, towards a van. That doesn't count backpack drives for Ace in the City or toy drives or donation to local, local food shelf. That doesn't include any of that stuff that comes out of pockets of our members and our regular tenders. This is a very, very generous church. Very, very generous church. And, and, I believe if we're going to be serious about our calling as a church... We've got to be very, very intentional about how we invest outreach dollars. And one of the things that I'm convic convicted of more than ever before is we can't simply outsource our outreach and be faithful to our calling as a church. 
At least not if we're going to be faithful to the whole witness of Scripture. When we were a brand new church plant, we had the unique opportunity to question everything. I hope we still do that. But especially then, we had to question everything. Well, how are we going to do this? How are we going to do that? And one of the things was budgets. Well, one of the lessons we learned really early on as a church, when we were asking questions, how do we budget really, really, really well? One of the things we learned early on was this, and there's a place to write this in your notes. Structures that foster division undermine mission. We realize we've got to do this well. We have to come up with a plan. Because if our plan is just to debate stuff all the time and vote on everything, that's going to be really bad. It's going to be really bad. Churches are made up of people, and people have their own perspectives, which is good, which is good. But unfortunately, church people have a reputation for arguing about what? Everything. That's exactly right I wrote in my notes. Everything. I have been in countless meetings where church people, when it comes to this whole topic, they argue about definitions of mission and what does and doesn't count as missions giving and who should get the money and how much money people should get. And these are important questions and these are good intentioned people. But often the way we go about discussing these things ends up destroying the kind of community that we want to be a part of. Can I get an amen? And this isn't just my observation, not just your observation. But here's Dietrich Beinhofer wrote this, and this is so good, so good. If you want me to email you this quote afterwards, I can, I can do that for you. He says this, Those who love their dream of a Christian community more than they love the Christian community itself become destroyers of that Christian community. Even though their personal intentions may be ever so honest, earnest, and sacrificial, God hates this wishful dreaming. Because it makes the dreamer proud and pretentious. Those who dream of this idolized community demand that it be fulfilled by God, by others, and by themselves. They enter the community of Christians with their demands set up by their own law. And they judge another and God accordingly. Who here has ever seen this in action in a church? All right, Greg and I. Well, let me tell you, it's out there. It's out there. Someone else put it this way. If we can go to the next slide, they summed it up. You can divide the world into two. Those who think there's two types of people and those who disagree. Can I get an amen to that? Yeah. All right. Well, here was the deal. We're going to disagree. We're going to disagree. And that's good because we're bringing different perspectives and different ideas to the table. We're going to disagree. And I believe one of the most important jobs that church leaders have is to set up frameworks that help us disagree well. So that we don't spend all our time disagreeing. But we make decisions so we can move forward. There are people who are starving as we speak. There are people who are on those refugee boats right now. There are people who are being abused and trafficked every time we sit in the meeting and we debate these things. These are the realities of the world we live in. There are so many things that don't have to be the way they are. And there are countless opinions about how we should respond. Without a God-honoring framework, churches find themselves wasting precious time in passionate arguments. And when they finally do reach a compromise that nobody likes, limited resources often get spread so thin doing lots of good that churches fail to do anything truly great. In a world that's so polarized, you guys, this is one of the places where we can shine like a city on a hill, where we disagree as much as anybody else disagrees, but we come together to the scriptures and we come up with a plan and a framework so that we can move forward. Because this is a world that does not do disagreement well. 
And I'll tell you this too, this is a world that does not do making a difference well. We'll look at some of the stats on that in just a couple minutes. So if you would be so kind, let's open up to our scriptures because we got precedence for this. Before we get into what we do, let's talk about the framework itself. We got precedence for this in the scriptures. And one of the ones I come back to often is Acts chapter 6. Here's a, here's a framework for how do you get a framework, a precedent for that. Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. And if you don't have a Bible at home, we'd love to make sure that you get one today. There's a free Bible. You can take, a, take one of those on your way out because we want to encourage everyone to read these scriptures. Oh, it's so life-giving. There's so much here. Acts chapter 6, verse 1 says this. Now, in those days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And they're talking about food there. And this is a big deal. This is a big deal. In those days, widows didn't have the same opportunities or safety nets that we have today. So if the people were overlooked, if those widows were overlooked, they went hungry. So this is a real issue. This is not a a, a small deal. And do you think people had strong opinions about that? Yeah, I bet they had very strong opinions about that. Let's look at what the church leaders did. Picking up with verse 2. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and they said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We'll turn this responsibility over to them and we'll give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. Here's what the leaders do. They framed out a plan and the plan was to identify qualified individuals who are filled with the spirit and filled with the wisdom and they would be empowered to figure this out. Picking up with verse five, the proposal pleased the whole group and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit and six others whose names are really hard to pronounce. And they, they presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. The leaders framed a plan. The people approved the plan. The team got to work then, actually doing the plan. They applied biblical principles. Why do I say that? Because this Stephen guy who I could pronounce his name, he, as you read later in the book of Acts, this guy knew his Bible. This guy knew his Bible. So they had biblical principles. They had best practices. And look what happened. Verse 7, the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Imagine that, religious people being obedient to the faith. Wouldn't that be cool? The leaders framed out a plan. The people approved it and the team got to work. And when they did, great things happened. The word of God spread, the number of disciples increased and even priests who should have been the kind of people who remained in the not interested camp They moved from not interested to curious. They moved from curious eventually to surrendering their lives to the way of Jesus and became obedient to the faith. And all of those things happened within a context of extreme persecution. There may have been other plans that could have worked. There might have been a whole lot of plans that would have worked if they would have applied it. What they did is they picked a good one, approved it, and they moved forward. And God blessed it. Very early on our own church history, in our own history as a church, we framed out a plan and we commissioned a team. I went back through my notes and and on the back of your notes today, I did a cut and paste. This is word for word of a document that as we were framing out a compassion justice mission team that we went through together. And this is word for word. That meeting was May 25th, 2011. You might have been on that, in that room. 
at that meeting, in addition to laying out, this, these are our values, this is the direction we're going, this is our purpose, in addition to that, and, and if you want, fact check me on this, I can give you the actual agenda. We framed out the team's um, purpose and guiding values. We also confirmed who our local partners were, our regional partners were, our international partners were going to be. We confirmed a process for adding new partners, and we established specific short and long-term goals. And as time went on, the vision became fuzzy. And so we went back to those principles that we find in Acts chapter 6. And last fall, as we were going into our budgeting process, we huddled our pastors, we huddled our directors, and we huddled our elders, and we even had one of our rare meetings where we brought elder representatives into our our, our meeting with our pastors and our directors. And we got 100% of us to vote and say, this is the plan. And then we brought the plan. We had a town hall meeting. We said, come and talk about anything you want to in the budget. This was the area of the budget. Outreach that had the most animated discussion. So we had that town hall meeting. Give, give input. Let's hear what you have to say. And then we had our annual meeting. And for the first time in our church history, 100% people approved our budget. Usually it's like 99. This was the first time, 100%. So we have a plan. We have a plan. Hallelujah. Here it is. There's a place right there in your notes. Here's the rough framework from it. And it shares the same DNA that we've always had as a church. DNA is the document that was written in 2011. Emmanuel's outreach, evangelism, and missional relationships budget. We've got two categories. We have our covenant family partnerships, and we have congregational engagement. Let's start with that first one real briefly. We are a part of a family of churches called the Covenant, and we are thrilled to be a part of this family. It is a great family to be a part of. In fact, that video that we showed earlier, that couple goes to a covenant church, Crossroad Covenant. I think they produced the video. We're an extension of the covenant's vision. They planted us, and the covenant continues to invest their time and their talents and their treasure in us as a church. And we do the same with them. A portion of our church budget goes to support missionaries all around the world and relief and develop initiatives in some of the darkest places on the planet through the covenant. And we invest in them, through them, in church planting, revitalization, and in leadership development and so much more. And we feel great about it. We feel great about it. And we feel great about this other section too. This congregational engagement section of our budget. We live in a unique time and we live in a unique place. And I'm talking about us here in the Northeast. We are some of the only people in history that could ignore impoverty and injustice if we wanted to. That is unique. Throughout history and throughout most of the world, you can't ignore it. You can't change the channel. You can't change the route of your car. You can't pull into your garage, shut it, and shut out the world. In most places of the world, that is impossible. Throughout history, that has been impossible. Here, it's very possible for many people. And that's not okay. And that's why we have this section of our budget. I tell you, I want to be the best possible pastor that I can be. And so I read a ton, I listen a ton, I watch a ton, and I get in in the situations where I'm asking people to coach me. People I respect, give me advice, how can I become better? And one of these people is Mark Stromberg. And as we were going through the process of framing this thing out and re-clarifying it, I went to Mark and I said, what do you think? And Mark said, "You're in the. this is a great direction to go. Great direction. He said, Chris, the bigger you guys get as a church, 
the more you're going to have people coming to you and wanting you to invest in their vision. And one of the things you cannot take your eye off of is your vision as a church. And that's to make disciples. That's the vision of a local church. Every, it takes different forms, but every church, that's your vision. Make disciples. You can't take your eye off of that. And one of the most effective ways to make disciples, especially the discipleship in this area, is to do what we're trying to do, and that's to get people personally engaged. To get people personally engaged. And we call it, we're starting to use this, this name that we didn't have when we started our church called Live Wire Partnerships. We're trying to invest in live wire partnerships. All right. So you guys are in the 915 service here, the early church. I don't know if this is going to work because I haven't had a chance to test it, um, test this, uh, this object lesson. But because I have so much confidence in this, I'm going to ask my wife, Laura. I love her more than anyone. This room. You can just sit there. I love you more than anyone in this room. So this is how much confidence I have in, in, in this. Not that it's going to be a good illustration, but that you'll be safe. Let me feed some more. And, and also here's a former elder who I love, Greg. And just hold it. Okay. So this outlet there, this live wire is plugged into the wall. So there, there are, there's electrical current that is going through this wire enough that it could kill you. It could kill you. But the reason I can hand you the wire is because it's insulated. It's insulated. So do you feel any electrical current running through your body right now? <laughs> do you feel any electrical current running through your body right now? Okay, so you guys can let go. Thank you. Now, <laughs> that was it. I'm not, it was easy. But there is electrical current running through. and I'm, uh, I'm going to try this way. Right? There's power running through this cord. They couldn't feel it. Why? Because the cord was what? Insulated. Now, when it comes to electricity, that's a really good thing. That's a really good thing. I'm horrible at electricity. I've shocked myself. I've blown fuses, all kinds of great sermon illustrations for another time. But this analogy, it's different in the sense, in real life, it's different in the sense where it is dangerous for us, if we're going to be faithful to our call, to be insulated. That's dangerous to us. Just a quick sampling. One of the ways it's dangerous, we can get the perspective that we're not rich. You look at the world's standards, we're rich. When you get live wire, when you get outside of the the areas, the cocoons that many of us are in, you begin to realize significance. You know, when you look at the, the, the video that we saw earlier and you see that boat packed with people, all of a sudden, cable going out. Who cares? These things have become, we get so worked up about. It's perspective. It's pride. We begin to realize this isn't mine. None of this is mine. This is all God's. He's given me the talents. He's given me the gifts. He's put me in the situation to be born. Simplicity versus complexity. When you're not hands-on, when you're at a distance from these issues, it's easy to say, oh, this is what needs to happen. It's when you get involved personally and you know the people in the situation, that's you go, this is way complex. I could go on and on and on. When there's not the live way relationship, you can look away. You can go, ah, I don't want to hear about this. When you know the people who are starving to death, when you know the people who are being trafficked, when you know the people who are being abused, you can't just ignore that. Because these now are people, not statistics. I provided a summary statement in your notes um, of some of the the categories of why we don't simply outsource our outreach. If we're going to be serious about making disciples, we can't do that. Also, if we want to make the most 
of the gifts and talents that God's given us as a congregation. We'd be crazy not to do this. Why don't we simply outsource our outreach? Because Livewire relationship, it is a game changer. Because Livewire discipleship is far more effective and, and efficient. Because Livewire partnerships have the potential to multiply our impact exponentially as we release the priesthood of all believers. Livewire partnerships promote faithful stewardship and real accountability. God willing, what I want to do, we're gonna, we have a, a, a series set apart in the fall where we're going to come back and it's going to be called Unsolated. And we're going to dive deep into each one of these then. And I wish we could now, but we don't have time for that. So there's a big framework. I cannot overstate the potential that is here if we get more and more people involved in Livewire relationships. It can change you and it can change our world. I tell you, it's a whole lot easier to write a check, isn't it? It is so much easier to write a check to just focus on the treasure part of time, talents, and treasure. And, and to be candid, I get contacted every day through email or other ways saying, hey, can you give us money? And they would prefer that we write them a check so that they could do the time and talents part. It'd be a whole lot easier. And we do some of that. We do a lot of that, actually. We write a lot of checks through the covenant to missionaries, to, to covenant relief, to all these great causes. And in addition to that, we set aside a portion of our money to invest in these live wire congregational engagement opportunities. Because the potential is here for so much. Can we put the reach out continuum up on the screen, please, Scott? Here's here's a continuum that we talk about. One of the small aspects of one of the one of the aspects of discipleship that we have here at the church is this. We want to help people move from insulated to introduce. And let me tell you one of the reasons why this is so big. If we can do this, if we, through the power of the Holy Spirit, can give people an opportunity to get up close and personal in, in a ministry situation where they're able to make a real difference, then the Holy Spirit takes over from there. And it doesn't matter. I don't got to give another sermon about it, Right? Because the Holy Spirit, because the word of God says, if the Holy Spirit is in you and you see a brother or sister who's without water, without food, and you just say, I'm going to pray for you, and you just walk away. How can the love of God be in you? If the love of God is in you, you see a need, you're in it face to face, you want to do something. You want to get engaged. And as people get engaged, what do they do? And they see that God uses it. If God really is using it to make a difference, then what do you do? You tell other people. You got to do this to become an advocate. So here's an example. Let me just give you a, a current example of what this looks like in real life. All right. So last summer, going into our trip, we were taking our teens down to Emmanuel Children's Home. We we're taking our teens down. There. So we, before the trip, we said to Emmanuel, we said, "What's on your wish list? What's something that you wish that you could do that you can't do because you don't have the funds for it?" And they said, "Oh." There's a lot of things, but one of them is this. We would love to be able to create a space for our kids, our little boys, where they could go and play in a safe and fun environment. We're like, we'll help you with that. So we took a portion of that budget. We sent it down to the children's home and they got all the supplies and materials and the workers all lined up. And here's what it looks like now. Look at this. God used you to do this in partnership with a man at children's home. Isn't that awesome? Now, here's what makes this extra powerful. What makes this extra powerful is now some of our teens who go back down or who see these pictures can say, I helped with that. Not only that, they can say, I'm sponsoring that kid. 
It's a part of them, right? It's not just, I wrote a check and, and, and I hope it, things turned out good. Now there's a personal vested interest and in, in a personal vested connection. And God uses that. I've seen it time and time again. Where then God and the Holy Spirit, they, they, they take the people and they, they engage their gifts and their talents and their abilities. And we have people who got introduced who are now doing the whole website. for Man's Children's Home. We get people who are introduced, they lost, they lost dance ministries. We have people that got introduced, they do all these kind of things on their own because they now are connected in a personal way. Introducing people to the right partners, it is a discipleship multiplier. And in the Shoreview area, it is important for us to take verses like this literally. James one twenty seven, Religion that is pure. And undefiled before God the Father is this. To what? To visit. To visit widows and orphans in their affliction. I, I, I asked the, the team make the slides to highlight the word visit. Because in the Greek, you know what that word means? To visit. To visit. Sometimes we translate it as to visit. Sometimes to show concern, to care for, to come and help. And the Bible is filled with passages, filled with passages. Are there passages in the Bible that say, send money? Yes, absolutely. And there's passages that say visit. And there's passages like this. First Thessalonians 2.8 says this. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but what? Our lives as well. Becca Backman is our director of outreach and operations, and she's been exploring best practices. And as she's been exploring best practices, talking to other churches and organizations, one of the things she found is that there's some organizations now that they say, if you want to talk to us about a partnership, let's do partnership for a year before we talk about money. Because let's see if this is really a partnership that you want rather than just a check. And I got to say this too. I'm going to look right in the camera. If you're one of the folks who's watching this, that we refer to this video before we have a conversation, I want to encourage you so much to consider not looking for short-term wins. Because if you reach somebody's heart, then the money follows. You know, that, that's where it begins. Relationship is a game changer, isn't it? Game changer. Because you'll give to a cause, but you'll sacrifice for people you love, won't you? You'll give to a cause. You'll sacrifice for people that you know and love. And not only that, when there's a relationship, then there's real communication. And you can talk about real needs and you can fix real problems. Here's another quote from that great book, When Helping Hurts. It says this, all around the world, one can find donated equipment that's rusting away, latrines that have never been used, community associations that have been disbanded, projects that have disintegrated soon after the nonprofit organization left town. Despite an estimated 2.3 trillion in foreign aid dispensed from Western nations during the post-World War II era, more than 2.5 billion people, approximately 40% of the world's population still lives on less than $2 a day. And the story in many North American communities is similar with an um, initiative, one initiative after another failing to meet its intended objectives. Indeed, 45 years after President Johnson launched the war on poverty, the poverty rate in America stubbornly hovers around 12% decade after decade, year after year. One of the reasons that the Act 6 plan was so effective is that they got the right people making the decisions. People who were close to the problem and people who had a vested interest in the people. I'm going to jump ahead, guys, on the outline to the bottom here. 
towards the bottom. Here's the invitation that we have for you today as far as making this actionable. One is this. If you want to, we want to invite you to experience live wire living with us. And the first step in that is to steward God's resources biblically. That's step one. Live wire living, it can change our lives. It can change the lives of others. And it begins right here with this. I promised at the top of the teaching that we look at two places where the tithe, the tithe is mentioned. If you're worrying how long is the service going to go, it's not going to take long because there's only two that I could find. Here's one of them. And here's why we wouldn't use these texts if you were trying to proof text traditional mission models. Numbers 18 is where you can find one of them. Verse 26, moreover, you should say to the Levites, when you take from the people of Israel the tithe that I've given you from them for your inheritance, then you shall present a contribution from it to the Lord, a tithe of the tithe. And then this verse goes on to say that tithe of the tithe goes to the priests. God instructed the Levites to give the tithe of the tithe to the priests. And then that's reinforced in the other place that I find, Nehemiah 10, 38 through 39, where it says this, And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levites should bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring a contribution of the grain, wine, oil to the chambers, where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister, and the gatekeepers and the singers. We will not neglect what? The house of the Lord, the house of God. The warning in this passage, these two passages, the warning here is don't neglect this local people of God. That's what this is about. If you ever tried to study tithing and you've come away confused, it's not just you. It's not just you. If you ever tried to study what tithing is and isn't, it's really hard because there's these references to the tithe that say this is for the local group congregation. Then there's other ones that do talk about using it for the poor. There are scholars who believe the tithe texts are describing more than one tithe. There apparently may have been a first tithe that went to care for the Levites and priests. There appears to possibly be a second tithe that was eaten by the actual household that tithed it. That's another teaching there. And there was a third tithe in the third year for the poor that may have replaced the second tithe that year. Well, on top of the 20 to 30% off the top, there were also expectations when it came to offering hospitality for strangers, additional offerings for building projects, instructions to leave a portion of your field, a vineyard for the poor. The bottom line is this. Everything is God's. And we're called to steward it well. Isn't that where it all lands? And also the bottom line is also this. When we steward things well, good things happen. Good things happen. I want to invite the worship band forward as as we talk about the last part of this whole idea of experiencing live wire with us, live wire living with us. We want to encourage you to unsolate yourself regularly. To unsolate yourself regularly. And we'd be happy, we'd be honored to help you with that if you don't have a cause already. I opened the story with a I opened with a story about a man named Freeman. Last Friday, Laura and I got to get together with some of our friends, the Freemans, and uh, we were out in their patio. And the con- conversation just naturally went to the causes that we're connected with because it's changed our lives. And we can't not talk about it. As a church, we'll do the best we can to help connect you. We'd encourage you to take advantage of those opportunities. Let's pray. Father, this world, this world, this world, this world is in need of people who are engaged in it This room is filled right here, right now with unlimited potential. Father, I pray that you call each one of us to take our next step 
towards becoming uninsulated. In Jesus' name, amen.